Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, which started at the turn of the century as an effort to gain a day of recognition for the significant contributions that the first Americans made to the establishment and growth of the United States, has resulted in a whole month being designated for that purpose. November is National American Indian Heritage Month. My guests today are the co-founder and executive directors of the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association. The ICIA uplifts cannabis economic development by advocating for equitable policy reform, empowering communities through education and destigmatization, and building connection through programming that brings together cannabis and hemp industries professionals, tribal leaders, government officials, and advocacy organizations. Ron Piero and Mary Jane Oatman, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thanks so much for having us. It's an honor. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, both of you. Let's. Uh, why don't we start before we jump in? Why don't we start a little bit by both of you giving me a little bit of your background? Ron, why don't you tell us about your background and then uh, Mary Jane? Uh, let's start with ladies first. Mary Jane, why don't you tell me about your background and Ron, tell me about yours. I was born and raised on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation in Idaho, and I have a very strong uh, upbringing of this beautiful plant as medicine, as well as a strong connection with the fiber as a part of uh, our industrial uh, culture uh, with with the rope making. And, you know, my grandma went to federal prison for cultivating marijuana in the early 80s. And so I really feel uh, empowered to be an advocate for indigenous equity and a recognition that we've had a long-standing relationship with this plant and with the fiber for thousands and thousands of years. And Ron, how are you? What's your background? Yeah, so um, Rob Perro, I'm Bad River in Oneida, out of uh, Wisconsin. Uh, my background is in media and marketing, and that's where I've, I've lived for about a dozen years working in native country. Uh, specifically for me in this industry, I, I threw my hat in the ring as a hemp grower in 2019 uh, with ambitions to you know, get into the industry. Uh, this has been a lifelong medicine for me. Um, I don't have you know, the sort of cultural and traditional uh, patrimony that you know, Mary Jane's tribe, tribe does with, with the plant, uh, but I have my own patrimony with it. So for me, um, I've worked in native country. We've seen uh, us build templates for uh, building around industries, especially emerging industries like cannabis and hemp. And I feel like we're positioned to be successful. And there was sort of a void in the industry for me uh, when I was when I was growing to, to try and find some other advocates that could help me move the needle. Unfortunately, there wasn't something. So we created something. Well, you know, let's back up because I think I, I would bet that a lot of people out there are just like me who don't really understand the rules and regulations behind, you know, what is you know, Native American nation territory and the way U.S. laws can prohibit what you do on your territory. Now, Mary Jane, you said something about the fact that your grandmother was arrested for growing hemp. I'm sure that she grew that on the reservation, not hemp, but cannabis, right? Yes, uh, she was growing on the reservation, which is lands that's held in trust by the federal government. So their our reservation systems are with that land under trust with the federal government, uh, creating a very complex relationship because, you know, we're residing the, these lands within states. And so we have 
to navigate the state tribal relationships. Uh, but cannabis has really created a new opportunity for tribes to assess what that sovereignty means in this healing journey with a plant that we had a relationship with before. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still a little confused. It, the, are, you, are you trying to tell, are you saying that the land isn't a trust, but it's still owned by the U.S. federal government? Is that what you're saying? Uh, technically, we're designated as wards of the federal government, uh, which means we're in a position of uh, relying on the government for protection uh, over our economies and our people, our health, um, through the negotiation of treaties, more particularly in the West of the United States, there's that unique legal relationship with the United States, the cession of land, you know, for protection by way of peace treaties. Um, but that's not the same story for our relatives on the East Coast. So that's what really causes a lot of the um, unclarity is that we have 500 and 76 federally recognized tribes, and each one of them has their own distinct relationship with the federal government. So, and that distinct relationship still gives the federal government the opportunity to basically lord over or dictate what you get to do on your land. Exactly. So, growing up, I mean, with with when they passed the farm bill, how did that impact tribal nations? Uh, well, the hard part about the 2014 version of the Farm Bill is that tribes were not exclusively named in there. So we did have tribal nations that moved forward with research development and cultivation, and those communities uh, suffered the ramifications of being excluded from that law by having raids on their federal lands by federal law enforcement. That's absolutely insane. I was not aware of that. That's how that works. So like right now, you've, tell both of you, help me with this. I mean, where where do tribal lands sit? And I guess they're all going to be different when it comes to whether or not you have the ability to, to you know, um, participate in, let's say, the, the again, the farm bill. Yeah, I, I can jump in on this one. I'm, sure. I'm in Wisconsin and, and a very similar state to uh, to MJ's, where gray state, where hemp is legal, um, and we have hemp-derived cannabinoids that are popping up in our state. We're not medicinal or recreational as far as full marijuana goes. So we're a very gray state. Every state around us has popped legally now, including uh, Minnesota most recently. So everyone is driving across the border to get their legal cannabis. And in the meantime, in Wisconsin, we're still kind of you know, playing the waiting game for uh, what we can do. In the meantime, we have 11 tribes in the state, uh, one uh, that is non-PL280, so we're, we're kind of a, a different state where we're public law 280. Uh, because of capacity uh, for law enforcement, things of that nature, uh, we are, rather than federally regulated, sort of state regulated jurisdictionally. So that's where the complications come into what we can and can't do. Uh, gaming sort of set a precedent around having relationships with the state to activate around industries like this. So I think a lot of tribes are waiting for the state to move before they move. Uh, but I would say that is past tense. I, I say that they've been uh, building uh, their knowledge base about uh, what legal backbone, legal backbone they need to protect the plant medicine that we grow on our own land that is really a medicine for our people. Uh, and then understanding opioids and fentanyl and all the substances that are, that are impacting our communities so disproportionately 
we're looking to move and you're seeing tribes move before states now in a very innovative and uh, just setting a new precedent, uh, establishing sovereignty first. Again, it's tough because there have been raids, people have been arrested, our sovereignty has been tested and we have been, um, you know, we've been hurt by it. There have been massive repercussions. And it, it's, it's, again, it's confusing for the person who's not in the midst of this because I was under the impression that what took place on reservations was, again, sovereign territory. So therefore, you had a right to do whatever you want to do, but you don't, right? <laughs> okay. That's where it gets really, it gets really, uh, you know, amazing, Montel, is that, you know, tribes are really trying to, you know, blaze new trails, specifically with this cannabis as medicine, economic development, and some of the benefits that can be created by um, regulating. And that's what tribes are really, you know, masters at doing. Uh, we, we can learn new systems, build new economies, and there is little guidance from the federal government. Uh, there are, you know, mandates for consultation with tribes that hasn't happened uh, over this complex issue of cannabis. So tribes are taking the tenants and the priorities of the Cole and Wilkinson Memorandum and developing new systems and creating uh, creating regulatory systems that are higher uh, a higher bar than even state regulatory systems. So. Uh, we have a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge um, that are really embracing uh, this complex industry, uh, reverse engineering the laws uh, that, as they pertain to Indian country to really build systems that work for our tribes. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that not one size fits all. Like, like, like I mean, again, the number of tribes that there are in the country the number of municipalities that they all under, everybody's a little different, right? And this is just is going to be as daunting as what we see going on in the 50 states, right? It is. That's why it's important for tribes to be organized right now and why, you know, a visionary like Rob who wanted to create solutions, and that's really where we're at across Indian country is solution-based. Okay, and how, how are tribes you know, uh, coming to this idea of an ICIA. I mean, are they, tell me a little bit about the mission first. Yeah, I mean, the mission was to open source the industry and to have it be led by community members rather than by tribal governments or by the uh, business development arms of tribal governments uh, that really have one mission, which is to, you know, develop the, the business enterprise of that tribe or, or build wealth for the communities. Um, but those things are, uh, they don't really have legacy to it. Tribal governments change. Um, political ideals of our tribes are all different, very unique across the country. Some are very conservative, some are very uh, progressive, uh, but finding something that was kind of for the people, by the people, and creating a table for us, by us, uh, by community members, knowing that this would be bigger than myself or MJ, uh, that we could have this kind of be placed amongst the community to, uh, to help us build knowledge for this, to help us find ways to connect, to help us find ways to vet out uh, you know, predatory consultants that have come into our communities over the years and have done bad deals um, and level the playing field, knowing that we don't have many of us left and our wellness is of a high priority. And rather than continually medicating ourselves with pharmaceuticals, we need to make our communities well. And how do we control that narrative uh, along that way is by building our own data sets because we've never curated that data for ourselves either. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in some cases, uh, this is, again, only coming from a layman, and, and I want to tell you, I've not done as much reading as I should have done or should do. But, you know, I do recognize the fact that over the course of the last 10 years, 12 years, you know, um, Native Americans and indigenous people have been disproportionately affected by, you know, the craze of opioids and fentanyl and all those things that have come into this nation that they pour into. <laughs> it's not like, you know, it's made on the reservation. So it's being poured into the reservation by whoever these nefarious groups are that are doing this, yet they won't allow you to grow something that is known to be a almost exit drug for those types of drugs. I'm, I'm still trying to figure, just get my mind around, you know, um, first off, do the majority of different tribes across the country feel as if cannabis and hemp would be useful or are you split down the middle? You said something about how you have conservatives and liberals, but I mean, it's the same thing that we see outside of the reservation, conservative liberals and feel entirely different about this drug um, and about this plant based medicine, I mean, are you feeling like the majority of tribes across the country are in step or are we out of step with each other? I would say that a majority of tribes want to have the liberty to pursue and self-determine if this is a good industry for them, whether it be hemp or cannabis. Um, in regards to, you know, pursuing cannabis and specifically adult, the adult medicinal that, that gets all the headlines, you know, that, that could be a big risk for some of these communities that do depend heavily on federal funding um, and don't have you know, a lot of diversification in their economies or maybe are only relying um, on, on a few things and then they don't, they don't want to mess that up. So they have a lot of fear of repercussion there. Or you have tribes that are invested heavily into uh, natural resources uh, and are doing very, very well. And to kind of add this as a risky uh, kind of divestment or uh, another investment that they can they can move forward with is not politically right to bring to the community at that time. Uh, and stigma and, and MJ, maybe you can jump in with this. Stigma is still massively uh, shadowed in our community with the Dare campaign, the war against drugs, um, and and that's still a big community outreach piece that we have as part of ICIA that we have a lot of heavy lifting to do just about how to articulate what this plant really is. Have marijuana underneath the cannabis umbrella. And, you know, Mary Jo, you, you, you brought up the fact that this has been culturally a part of the indigenous population's culture for thousands of years, correct? Absolutely. We have, I think, a big work ahead of us for our tribal communities who have lost a lot of the story of the seed acquisition or how they used it as a textile uh, we definitely have uh, come a long way since the ICIA was created, though, Montel. The community conversation is shifting into a lot more of an acceptance. And I think that there's also a lot more education that's been had about the different opportunities now for consumption methods, because the uh, the smell triggers a lot of trauma for some of our elders and they just don't really like the the smell of you know smoking uh, flower cannabis and when they have the opportunity to learn about the medicinal properties of tinctures and topicals uh, about some of the other methods of delivery for compassionate care like suppositories they really are embracing it more 
Um, but the the hardest challenge has has definitely been that campaign against the plant and the generation that we're working with now, a lot of them that have a lot of influence in their tribal communities that see it as just another drug and they liken it with the addiction uh, problems that we had with alcohol and other substances. Um, so I think that the the prohibition in our community started long before the actual war on drugs when in the 1800s, the late 1800s specifically, uh, the federal government started to criminalize uh, religious gatherings amongst our Native American people. And that's what created the American Indian Religious Freedom Act that we know of today was a, a reclamation as well as a reconciliation that the government actually stopped our spiritual practices and way of life. So it was in the 1800s that we started having a severance of our relationship where the government seized peace pipes from our, our warriors and our treaty chiefs, and it became illegal to gather in a spiritual way as people. So now how many different tribes are involved in the ICIA? Go ahead, MJ. Okay. Uh, we have uh, created a process uh, of our tribal governments actually passing a resolution to become a member of the ICIA. So we're up to six tribes now. And we also have tribal enterprises, which are kind of the business development arms of our tribal governments that are uh, creating the uh, pathways for the regulation, compliance, and uh, operations of the cannabis uh, industry, we have tribes doing everything from uh, testing and cultivation to uh, being some of the most innovative in the cannabis industry. And the first, you know, cannabis drive-through uh, in the nation was operated by a tribal nation in Nevada, in the first, one of the first lounges. Uh, so we have a, a, one of the first mobile dispensaries as well out of Minnesota. Um, so we have tribes as members, tribal enterprises as members, uh, a good handful. Um, I think we're up to about five on the enterprises and uh, the word of mouth is spreading, but it was really important for us to create a resolution uh, for tribal governments to pass, to become a member of our organization, uh, to showcase uh, the work that we're doing as far as uh, protecting tribal sovereignty with federal cannabis uh, reform in Washington, D.C., uh, that's really important to us as an organization that um, at the end of the day, uh, our advocacy is backed by our tribal nations and uh, the, the teeth of a resolution really means a lot for our trade organization. Uh, you know, but now I'm going to distinguish between both hemp and cannabis, though they're same plant, but just yep. different levels of THC. But now has the tribal nations embraced the growing of hemp for industrial purposes? Yes, we've had a lot of tribes embracing, uh, but we're actually, uh, you know, in doing some of our data analysis, seeing that we now have more tribes operating recreational retail cannabis uh, in some form or fashion or regulating it for their members to be able to participate in the industry. Uh, then we do have uh, USDA farm uh, bill plan approved tribes. We're up to about 51 tribes uh, with approved plans through the USDA. And uh, we have probably 100 tribes uh, uh, robustly operating in the cannabis industry. 
And when they robustly operate within a cannabis industry, are they under different regulations in each state, meaning you have to deal with the federal rules, and then you have to deal with the state compliance rules? I mean, do, do you get the, uh, is there reciprocity across state lines for um, um, tribal nation grows and things like that? Or do you have to confine yourself to each individual state the way um, the Fed has set it up for everybody else? Yeah, I would say uh, it's it's a beautiful mess of everything right now. So you see uh, tribes that are uh, in compacts, you know, to operate in states. You're seeing sovereign markets like in California where uh, tribes have uh, the autonomy to keep themselves out of the adult use market and, and uh, utilize their sovereignty to have a tribal market. Um, well, and when you do that, does that mean that you don't get to participate in putting any of your product that you grow on the tribal land into the state program, or is that how that works? That is correct. So you cannot participate in the uh, recreational market in California as a tribal sovereign market. Before Can you participate as recreational on your own land with your own site, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's so bizarre to me. I'm telling you, you've, you've got to be jumping through millions of uh, unnecessary legal dollars just to answer well, some questions. Yeah, I mean, that's a call to action, Montel, is, you know, we're trying to build capacity around how can we have intertribal commerce? You know, we have Indian trade acts that uh, have precedent over a Schedule One listing. So, you know, we've, we've been trading for, for centuries, um, and this is just another, you know, egg commodity the way that we look at it. So um, there's a lot of blurred lines right now. We're really trying to bring some clarity to it from a regulation perspective, uh, because that's the peace of mind that we're going to need to be able to move this and still be a good neighbor to our state and the federal government. Are you finding this whole concept or construct being embraced by the indigenous nation or it's it's sketchy it's state by state municipality by municipality tribe by tribe i'll, I'll jump in real quick and then i'll i definitely want to hear mj's feedback on it you know we we've had great we've been embraced so warmly from across the globe you know it, it, indigenous doesn't see you know state lines or, or country lines you know indigenous is indigenous and, and we did that for a reason uh, but we've been embraced and, and we're so humbled by that to have such uh, a great response and and not only response, but engagement and people participating and showing up at every one of our events and it grows every single time. Uh, now, there are those tribes and tribal entities that want to have autonomy. They want to do things their way and they have their total right to do that. Um, we don't want to infringe on any proprietary you know, IP uh, or you know, distributions that, that are happening. And we know you know, sovereignty is being uh, exercised right now, and we're, we're very proud to hear about some of the things that are happening. Um, we also know that there's a number of individuals and, and consulting groups that probably don't want an ICIA out there sort of as a, a net of vetting uh, for credible vendors for Indian country. Uh, and we've noted that, you know, and we've, we've been brought into situations over the last couple of years already, uh, sort of, you know, here's the wreckage of what, you know, ABC company had done before. How can we make sure they don't do this again? And what's your vision for the future of tribal cannabis production and distribution in the U.S.? We most certainly want tribes to know that they shouldn't sit back and wait for permission and just to be participants in a market that we are well positioned to lead, if not own. Uh, we have definitely the 
ethos that is very much needed for the cannabis industry as far as promoting and supporting regenerative agriculture, um, really supporting local grown um, markets and uh, the the future for ICIA when it comes to our tribal nations is, is really bright because tribes now understand that it's not if, but when. And because of the ICIA, our community's conversation around cannabis has trained, uh, changed drastically just in the, in the couple short years that we've been in existence. Uh, because our people understand that the sovereignty is not just around the economy, but around um, how we heal our communities. And the health aspect of what's happening is very, very much what we look to lead in as far as creating partnerships for research around our unique needs of our communities. And so partnerships is a big part of our organization. And that means allyships, not just Indian country. We have a lot of a lot of resources out there that have stepped up to the table that are allies wanting us to see, wanting to see us succeed in um, making sure that indigenous communities are not the silent eye and BIPOC because that has happened over the last decade is with uh, within this indig or within the equity reform and the racial justice movement is that indigenous communities were not only getting left out completely um, but uh, we're finding that there are well-organized efforts to keep us out of the industry. I mean, I find it, it's, it's weird. I, I, again, I'm going back to questions that just keep popping up in my mind. It's like, how difficult will it be for you to reach a point where you can take product grown and processed on a reservation and then put it into the existing system that a state has established for you know, like whether it be adult use or a medical use, that you're able to sell your products to state authorized dispensaries and things. Is there? That's what, no, that's what's so wonderful, Montel, about the relationships that are starting to happen, especially in states where there's not uh, as adversarial of relationships between states and tribes. There are that is existing out there. There are dispensaries. Uh, that are owned, wholly owned and operated by tribal nations where there's a reciprocity. And that's kind of what the compacts have evolved into. Gaming con uh, compacts were a mandate where tribes have to cede taxes to the state just to participate in the gaming industry. Cannabis compacts are starting to evolve into something so much more beautiful where it's reciprocity for public health. And that's really at the end of the day what we want tribal nations to lead in uh, the conversation that this is about public health and safety, quality access, um, and being very mindful that this um, taxation scheme around the medicine and its access is something that we don't have to wholly embrace. Got it. So, um, and in some, I guess, districts around the country and some municipalities around the country, they're embracing the opportunity to have you involved and others, are they pushing back to keep you out? I, I wouldn't say anyone's pushing back to keep us out. You know, we just, maybe, maybe they have, and we haven't heard about it. Um, you know, the reception has been good. And I think all we can do is continue to educate and advocate and push out as much uh, kind of open source information and really just build a collective of peers that are kind of lifting everybody up in this space. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of FOMO in Indian country. 
Um, so the more that we can keep doing good things, we feel like you know we'll get recognized and, and we can you know rise up together. And and you know I mean uh, besides regulation, what's holding back the development of this industry on more indigenous sovereign land? Right now, uh, the biggest obstacle is not unique to Indian country. It's it's industry standard access to capital. Right now, tribes cannot utilize their gaming funds. They've you know been given clear guidance from the the federal Indian Gaming Regulatory Commission that we don't commingle those funds. Gaming. Wait 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 wait. wait. <laughs> the the Fed is telling you you can't make you can't take the profits you've made in this business. And use any of it over here. That's where we, that's where we sit with within the uh, the funded priorities of gaming uh, gaming revenues. Uh, tribes have uh, five areas that they're allowed to utilize those uh, gaming revenues for, and cannabis, unfortunately, is not one of them. Or or even other areas of economic development that are definitely legal. I'm I'm just saying it like uh, like credit unions or you know uh, or sovereign nations that you know hold their own banking. Those banks should be able to invest in any business that they choose to, but you're not allowed to do that. So that's where uh, our network comes in. Montel is we're we're growing it. We're leaning into the data and the research around which which banks are out there lending to Indian country. Which of our Native American banks are working uh, with tribes in cannabis? Uh, which ally banks want to work with tribes in cannabis and inviting them to become a part of our network. That's, uh, it just seems a little, it just seems like you're up against three times the regulation that anybody else would be up against. Am I am I am I envisioning this right or no? Yeah, I would say that that is correct because I think we have the most to lose. You know, so I think for us, you know, making sure that that our regulatory body uh, for whatever uh, and remember, like this is all going to be patchwork, um, has to be above board. You know, so I think that is the test for Indian countries. Can we lead this? Because there really is no baseline for regulation right now. There's no baseline. I mean, from a tribal standpoint, you have to get the entire collective to come together to say, yeah, we like this idea. Now let's look for equal, equal uh, economic opportunities that we can help move this industry forward to the betterment of all. It's like the rising tide lifts all boats kind of a thing. But you don't have the support of all of the individual tribes, right? Yeah, we, we never will. We never will. We don't expect to. Um, but what we know is that we can move you know, this mission for this industry forward. And in, in my opinion, technical assistance and transfer of knowledge is, is always critical to any emerging industry that they will kind of put in front of any country and say, here, here's this, go get it. And this is about being farmers again and being ag and being manufacturers and being scientists and and that is actually that's where our professional acumen of our indigenous population is trending and that's what's beautiful about um just the times they are changing and leadership is changing our, our tribal leaders are changing and we're all seeing the bigger picture and sort of shedding that prohibition era that we all went through and our eyes are being opened so in my opinion you know, we're never going to be able to reach everybody, but what we can do is open source it for everyone to kind of pick what they want and get out of it what they need. But ultimately, we're all we're all better off for it. Um, we have 
70 to 80% of the undeveloped land in the country yet, and we have sovereignty. We know everybody wants some of that, but we also know what we have now. And I think there's power in that knowledge um, and the fact that we are creating this table for ourselves and inviting others to sit with us. Uh, again, there's power in that too. And if somebody wanted to reach out to get more information, where would they go? Um, our website is full of tremendous resources, some videos of our past policy summits. Uh, we just held our second annual Washington, D.C. Cannabis Policy Summit for Tribes, and they can uh, see all of that at www.indigenouscannabis.org. Uh, and we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, uh, Indigenous Cannabis uh, Industry Association. And Rob, can you tell me a little bit about your company? You have a company called Candigenous 11, uh, Candigenous, and what is the Ripley Green Apothecary? I appreciate you asking me that. Candigenous is the reason I started ICIA. Uh, Candigenous is cannabis and indigenous co combined into uh, one word uh, that I created in 2019 when I started my farm. Um, I was trying to level that business up, and I realized there was no sort of national native advocacy group and i'm a member of local chambers in wisconsin and regional american indian uh, workforce development groups i sit on boards um so that was that's my company i'm still moving forward with it it's a beautiful thing we just had our uh, second line of wellness products we were actually able to showcase out at shinnecock at little beach harvest uh, so tribes lifting other tribes up and tribal brands which um my, my background is media and branding so making sure that not only our tribes participating but that our brands our top shelf. Now, are your brands only in indigenous dispensaries or are they in crossover dispensaries? I'm going to call it crossover. So right now, indigenous, we're, we're hemp and CBD, so we can be pretty much anywhere. Um, and, you know, we're, we drop shit to about 40 states right now. So uh, we're hemp derived cannabis and, and CBD. Uh, we are not in the uh, adult or medicinal market as of yet. Gotcha. And Mary Jane, you're a part of Indigenous Cannabis, the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition. Tell me a little bit about that. So the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition was a nonprofit organization that I started specifically to preserve the story of what was happening the, during this very historic time with plant medicine. I, as I mentioned, my grandma went to federal prison for growing and I have worked in nonprofit leadership in the past. And I thought if I could create something that provides news, relevant news, education, uh, for Indian country um, to showcase like beacon tribes that are doing some amazing things, but also, you know, to, to promote the work that my grandma, uh, who I put on the cover of the very first issue, um, to, to share stories to help end the negative stigma. So the coalition, uh, the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition uh, was the initial starting of the organizing and gathering of tribes in, in community. And then uh, the Indigenous Cannabis Industry Association is like the, the sister organization, uh, but it is a 501c6 trade organization. So we have different um, capacity areas uh, between the two different organizations, but the Indigenous Cannabis Coalition was created exclusively for THC Magazine to be able to provide 
provide the education across tribal nations. Um, I also developed a proprietary map uh, that's the centerfold for every THC magazine. And that is a, a tracking of all of the tribal nations and enterprises uh, working in cannabis. So uh, working, is it's always been data driven. I think that Rob and I both came from advocacy and business backgrounds um, that, that created the perfect storm for the indigenous cannabis industry association to be embraced by tribal leadership. And it has been, we're at all of the, the national uh, tribal organization events as the leaders carrying forward the cannabis conversation, because it is still very difficult for them to, to lead in those conversations at the, at the yeah. national. Well, you mentioned THC magazine, that stands for tribal hemp and cannabis magazine. Tell me a little bit more about that. So Tribal Hemp and Cannabis Magazine, uh, 48 pages, gloss cover to cover, uh, and it's all things tribal hemp and cannabis. Uh, that's what brought me out to the Shinnecock Nation last week to cover the grand opening of Little Beach Harvest, which is really one of the most hybrid models that we've seen so far, because not only is the Shinnecock Nation carrying their tribal brands other New York state tribal brands, but they also have some of the legacy and uh, legacy markets from across the state of New York on their shelves. So what you had asked earlier about having state licensed uh, cultivators on the shelves of tribal nations, that's happening there under tribal law and authority where they can, they can have that market presence. And again, please excuse my ignorance, but can then people go onto tribal land if they're not tribal members and purchase, or is there some differentiation where you have to have a different, you know, card or a different license, or you know, it's, it's I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah, again, it's right now because it's kind of popping up under which states are legal. You know, we have like the Flandre Sandy Sioux Tribe in South Dakota. You have to have a medical card to be able to purchase any cannabis at their medical dispensary. Um, it has all of the vibe and nuances of a recreational retail, but you have to be a card carrying medicinal cannabis patient to be able to get any products. Shinnecock Nation, it is a recreational retail vibe. They expect to meet the needs of the Hamptons year round. Yeah, but they're going to wonder, okay, somebody goes onto the tribal land, purchases a product, takes it off tribal land, do you not put yourself in a position where, you know, any municipalities, law enforcement can come in and bust your head? Yeah, I would say that that's a common crux as to, you know, jurisdiction and law enforcement. Do they have a relationship with, you know, those federal highway sheriffs to have an understanding there? I would look at Wisconsin and wonder why no one's getting arrested when they drive back from Illinois, Michigan, or Minnesota right now. And what would be the difference if we had tribes selling medicinal cannabis, would that be hypocritical if they were arresting them from coming off our reservation if they're not arresting them from coming? From but, you know, I, I would, I probably would, would not challenge you, but I, I'd love to look and take a look at, you know, whether or not some of those people are being arrested, because what we don't understand is that though we've got 37 states in the District of Columbia that, you know, have some form of legal cannabis going right now, there have been still a quarter of a million arrests for cannabis violations in the last year alone, a quarter of a million. And a lot of that's happening, not in the states that didn't pass laws, but happening in states that have laws or have, you know, medical cannabis uh, programs. And, you know, one little municipality next to another little municipality, you buy, you know, something over here, drive it three streets over, 
Next thing you know, you're going to jail thinking that you have a legal product because the state said it's legal, but that municipality didn't say it's legal, so you go to jail. That has been a huge, a huge factor for some of our tribes operating in a, in areas where they have the opt-out for local municipalities where one tribe is working on trade uh, through through their different dispensary and cultivation networks and they have to cross through some of these counties where they've opted out uh, it, it's it's complex in california it's complex in nevada and they've been doing this for a while and they still have not gotten all of the kinks out in regards to uh, the the local control uh, laws that have been written in and that's something that we definitely advocate for when when state reform is happening is to not allow that to happen you just said that you had your second annual conference that was in dc what has been dc's reaction to what you're doing I mean, has it been been public or are they keeping this reaction kind of private under the radar i'll, I'll let mj go on this one this was her baby Sure. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, the um, interesting part about our, our reaction in Washington, D.C. from our, our sister organizations in cannabis has been embraced with open arms. They have been waiting for Indian country leadership to speak forward on what are our priorities for cannabis reform? What are the challenges that have been unique to our communities that they can help also advocate for and carry our water forward in Washington, D.C.? Uh, as far as uh, some of the federal bills that have come forward so far, we're seeing a lot more progress in the past uh, four to five years in terms of how they write tribes into the laws. Uh, you know, we're not just falling in, in definitions, but there's a lot more deference to tribal sovereignty um, in, in the uh, Safer Banking Act, um, definitely in the um, different versions of the MORE Act as it first introduced to now, uh, we're seeing stronger provisions for tribes. Uh, just a couple of years ago, we actually had a bill come forward uh, that um, specifically impacted uh, tribal nations uh, through the Commerce, Science and Justice Committee to not allow federal funds to be used for cannabis-related uh, activities for regulated cannabis tribes. So basically, you know, putting the moratorium on spending any funds on enforcing regulated cannabis uh, authority on tribal lands. Wow. Okay, well, and there's going to be more to come, I'm sure. Right. So anything else you want to add that I've, I've not asked? I, I just I mean, as our organization has grown so fast and furious and just for context, you know, MJ was out doing a lot of this advocacy work before I was. I'm a business owner and a media marketing guy that, you know, has has worked through channels to see how, uh, you know, industries can grow in Indian country. And I've been a catalyst for some of those. So. Uh, knowing that she was out doing her due diligence and I was able to, she actually had written an article about me in THC magazine. And that's how I met her. It was at a national Indian uh, economic development conference in Vegas, the largest one uh, in the country. And none of their agenda topics were on cannabis or hemp. This was just a couple of years ago. So we just met serendipitously there and she had written an article on me. Um, you know, we found each other. Uh, we decided as community members that we needed to bring this you know, to a, another level. Uh, we resourced, we networked, we asked for help. Um, and that's the only way you get things done in Indian country, in my opinion, is you lean on other people. 
we built a community around this. That community continues to grow. Um, and we could not be more humbled or blessed with how much this has grown, but this is also a massively heavy lift uh, and we need help. Uh, so as many uh, individuals that, you know, know that they can provide resources, they could volunteer, they want to support, sponsor, uh, they've done work in Indian country before and they know that the help that we need, um, come to indigenouscannabis.org and check us out. Uh, we have a lot of events upcoming. We have a lot of resources online. Um, really a lot of due diligence that we've done that we want to share because the more that we can open this industry up, the more understanding there is around it and clarity about how to move forward. Uh, and that's what we'd like Indian country to do. Well, Mary Jane Oatman and Rob uh, Piero, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Um, I, very fascinating because this is an area that I've really, you know, I think I've, I've literally been remiss in educating myself as much as I possibly could on what's going on in indigenous lands. And um, I thank you for helping educate all of us. The pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You stay well. And if anything breaks or anything's going on, you want to talk about it, you can always, you always have a place here, okay? Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Both of you, thank you so much. Be well. Enjoy your holidays. And for you, thanks so much for tuning in to this edition. Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.